Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. Also, make sure to donate to Extra Life. We've got a link down below in the description, or you can even join the Indie Game Business Extra Life team. That link is down in the description as well. Here we go, Indie Game Business. Oh, hi there. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name's Indy, and the gentleman right next to me is Mr. Jay Powell from Powell Group Consulting, and this is Indie Game Business. And today we have Christopher Wolf, and he's going to be talking about the art of the pitch deck with a deep analysis. And uh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be exciting. So yeah, this is this is one that I'm excited about too because this was this was originally part of the show a couple of weeks ago, but Chris had something come up, and so we had to rearrange everything. And so for Andy and I, this is going to be a really uh, easy episode today. We're going to let Chris run with it. But if you've got questions at any point, uh, pop them in chat wherever you are. Uh, we'll still see it. We'll still get it answered. But yeah, this is this is going to be a good one. So Chris, let roll with it. Sounds good. Hello, everybody. Thanks. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I apologize for not making it uh, earlier during the event a couple weeks back, but I'm very happy we found a spot to, to uh, host this talk now in this live format. So the art of the pitch deck. Um, I should probably just give everyone a short rundown of how this is going to work. Uh, obviously, it's going to be a pretty straightforward presentation. I believe, and I probably should have clarified that first with our two hosts, there is uh, time and space for some Q&A afterwards if anything po pops up, I would assume. And um, one thing that I, wish I should generally mention is this talk initially was created by me and Alan Dang uh, over at Genbit. Uh, so a shout out to him. Without him, all this would not be possible. Cool. Uh, a short introduction about myself. I am Chris, Christopher Wolf whatever you want to call me. I'm the publishing director at Romanian-based developer slash publishing hybrid tag, which is short for those awesome guys. We publish a bunch of titles on PC and console. Uh, if you've heard about us before, you may have done so because of Move or Die, which we developed, and Floppy Nights and Monster Problem, which we're publishing. Uh, yeah, besides that, in my former life before the publishing world, I used to work in events, most noticeably on a thing called the Indie Mega Booth, which is now in cryosleep. And uh, if you ever see myself uh, online on TikTok or whatsoever, you'll probably see me obsessing over, uh, sorry, not on TikTok, on Twitter. You'll see me about uh, obsessing about TikTok. I believe it's a super undervalued marketing tool, and I'll scream about it everywhere that I get a chance to do so. All right, um, otherwise, just a short disclaimer. This is obviously not a talk about pitching. It is about pitch decks. Uh, otherwise, we could probably chat for hours and days as pitching is a whole nother level. Uh, it is made under the assumption that you're one, ready to pitch, two, working on a premium PC slash console title, and three, focusing on what I title a standard pitch, which is more focused on investors and publishers. But uh, overall, this is a framework. It's not a fixed guide on how to you can definitely find ways of using the information shared here to either come up with 
pitches for other types of partnerships that you're entering, uh, as well as for other titles, such as free-to-play titles, mobile, VR, and so on. My background is just premium PC console. Cool. Uh, final disclaimer, um, to make this whole presentation a little less subjective and a little bit more reflective of the overall independent games industry, Alan and I, a couple months ago, ran a questionnaire with a bunch of industry veterans, collected some data, uh, made sure we had an actual data set available to analyze and yeah, to tweak this presentation therefore. So whenever you hear me mention percentages, those are based on this questionnaire. All right. When talking about pitching, there's obviously a bunch of people you can pitch. There's publishers, but there's so much more. There's platforms, project-based funds, investment companies, government funding organizations, uh, and us. It's not an ad, but keep us in mind. Uh, so your pitch deck in general might be used in very different forms and ways. First part, that's not really part of a pitch deck per se, but I just wanted to briefly touch upon is an NDA, just because that's something that came off at came up quite often during our conversations with uh, other publishers, investors, platform holders, and such. NDAs are good, they serve a purpose, and can definitely be signed. Same goes for mutual NDAs, which cover both sides, basically. But what should be kept in mind is your idea at the end of the day, just the idea as a, a, at its core, is worth a small percentage of what the overall execution will be worth. What publishers are looking for is not an idea. Publishers are not there to just take your idea, steal it because there's no NDA in place and move on from there. But they are looking for someone that can execute upon that idea. Otherwise, they would be making those titles internally. You can probably compare it pretty well with uh, what I what I call like the typical idea guys. If you're part of a bunch of like these face indie Facebook groups where indie developers chat and share their um, share their current projects, every couple of months, uh, some person pops up and asks how they can become an idea guy at a major company and just get paid to have ideas. Good luck with that. That doesn't exist. Same goes for publishing. Same goes for pitching. So having an idea is one thing, but if you're trading, if you're trying to make sure a publisher doesn't uh, doesn't hear about the idea, not even at the core elevator pitch level before signing a non-disclosure agreement, you will probably have trouble doing so. A majority of folks that we chatted with uh, responded to the, well, responded to the questionnaire in the form that as long as they don't know what an elevator pitch is at the, at the bare minimum level, they're most likely not going to sign an NDA just because it's not worth the hassle and the back and forth. And you should keep in mind, many platform holders especially will require you to sign their NDA, which usually might be a MNDA, but yeah. All right, let's, let's actually talk about the presentation. Content is number one, and that's very much at the, at the bottom of my heart. Um, it's what makes a pitch deck stand out to some degree, at least uh, at, on, the first, on the first level, on the top level. One thing you should keep in mind when it comes to the core gameplay pitch, which should be the essence and what you start off with uh, on your doing your pitch deck presentation, is a pretty far spread study at this point, a so-called goldfish study. A couple of years ago, um, well, a neuroscience a neuroscientist figured out that uh, the at this at this point the human society has. Um, has developed in a way that we have less of an attention span than a goldfish, which is quite quite important to know when you're putting together a pitch deck, as it makes it just so much more important to focus on what is important and what is at the very core of what you're trying to convey uh, with your message. 
Another good example, uh, I chat with a bunch of uh, publisher friends recently, a couple of them uh, listed below. And just up until, I believe this was early August, so about a month ago, they had looked at anywhere between 50 and over a thousand pitches just this year. Not all publishers have the money, the resources, the time to dedicate to like a full-time uh, scouting personnel. And even if a thousand plus pitches just within eight months or seven months, I guess, is a extensive amount. So you need to make sure to convey or to convince the other person very quickly that uh, your project is worth exploring further on, on their end. I think we right now are uh, at over 400 pitches. Uh, we don't have any full-time scouts, full -time pitches, uh, 400 pitches that we've looked at this year. No full-time scouts. Um, there's two of us that take a look at pitches at the end of the day and sort of sort through them at the first level. So that's already a ton of time that we're spending on it and we need to also do the rest of our jobs. All right, this is an internal example uh, of, of the uh, previously mentioned Floppy Nights, a project that we're publishing, but that was pitched to us. Uh, this pitch deck uh, in particular is for other purposes, but just to give you an idea of what your introduction slide might look like. Uh, at, ver at the very first site, you immediately know what genre Floppy Nights can be put into. You uh, have a link to a trailer, you have some key art, and some short insight into the setting and the backstory of the title. In just one slide, that will take a couple of seconds to review. Pretty straightforward. On the other hand side, this is a what I like to call the TLDR format, the too long didn't read format. I tend to enjoy those at the very start of a presentation. Uh, this obviously is taken from an old press deck of ours, but I get uh, I would assume you get the gist. Instead of uh, the press contact and websites and Twitters, you include the budget needed, uh, the release window, playtime, maybe maybe uh, some links to gameplay or the build itself. And then there's a quick overview slide at the very beginning already that the partner you're pitching to can take a look at and decide, hey, is this something worth exploring further? Further for us, is there a concrete uh, a concrete deal breaker here that will probably mean we'll go our separate ways or any major opportunities that will convince the partner to enter this conversation a little bit more extensively and read through the rest of your deck. It speeds up it speeds up our review process and it speeds up you getting the response that you want. Either a hey, let's continue, or sorry, we might not be the right partner for you. Otherwise, redundancy is very good. I'm not going to dive too much into the communication with publishers through emails and discords and so on. But what you should keep in mind is um, the getting someone hooked already starts in the first initial email. A email that very, very quickly conveys, this is the project, this is what I'm looking at, is pretty much perfect for any quick conversation starter. If you have a extremely long email where you're trying to convey all the details about your project instead of a pitch deck, then that will probably scare away a lot of people or at least um, not have them be as quickly responsive as you may have wanted to receive a response from initially. Remember, you need to get a person hooked at first glance in the email as well. And uh, a deck might, or in, in many cases, be shared outside of the, the email messaging system of your choice meaning if you're sending uh, information that's only in the email and not in the pitch deck, that may get lost internally in communication between the different uh, different employees, team members at a publisher or at an investment company. So make sure to keep your information redundant and also uh, include them, therefore, in the pitch deck. At TAG, as an example, we share, uh, we share pitch decks internally via Discord, or we have um, this spreadsheet, which is our 
our pitch review spreadsheet. It's pretty straightforward. There's not too much information in there. Um, it's just meant uh, to keep things pretty cle clean and pretty straightforward. So there's not too much space to include all the information that you're sending over in an email. Make sure it's in the pitch deck as well. Speaking of a pitch deck, uh, let's talk visuals. Option number one, obviously, is static imagery. In this case, for Monster Prom, what I should mention is it's not a real pitch deck. This is like a mock-up I quickly put together. Um, the real pitch deck looks extensively better than my graphic design skills, which is why you should work with a graphic designer, but we'll get to that later. Focus on what represents the game at, at the core level the most accurately. Obviously, gameplay, uh, sorry, screenshots are the best. You will get a quick insight into what the game looks like, what it feels like to some extent. Staggering 97%, I believe, wanted to see screenshots in a pitch deck. Not sure what the other 3% overall preferred or why they weren't too keen on screenshots. Anyway, screenshots, perfect. Key art can be cool to get like an idea of the visual aesthetics of the style of the game. I tend to prefer that as like an opener slide or closing slide or maybe as a background, not necessarily to convey what the game is about. And mockups, obviously, always an, an option to go with. Um, reference material as well, more of, an, of a backup option if you actually have something that is more, more extensive, more polished than, than some mockups, make sure to go with that instead. A very good resource I can recommend is by Adam Becker Saltzman from 2018, so-called uh, screenshot theory that they put together, I believe, after either GDC or PAX. Uh, either Google it, here's a link. It's pretty, pretty helpful as a general resource uh, and goes very much in detail about the so-called screenshot theory. Now, on the other hand side, you have moving material, trailer, gameplays, animations, and so on. Um, the, the clear favorite by far, obviously, again, is gameplay. You want to convey how the game plays, hence gameplay being the number one choice. Animation trailers, again, they don't bring much to the table when it comes to conveying the core gameplay. Nice to have. You may link to them if they're already published and have some impressive numbers in terms of viewership. Sure, great to link to. Otherwise, gameplay definitely uh, by far is the better choice. And gameplay commentary, that seems to be a trend these days. I personally, and uh, generally speaking about the, the questionnaire that we put together, think that gameplay commentary is only really worth something if it adds to the pitch, if you're communicating something that's not been captured as part of the pitch deck or the gameplay itself. So otherwise, just rule, just run with gameplay footage. People can then look at it at their own uh, enjoyment and make sure to and sort of skip through without having to pay attention to the narrative that you've added to the video. This is an easy implementation example of how um, the Floppy Nights devs included it in their deck. Pretty straightforward. I, I enjoy it. It's a good way to also approach adding a build link to your pitch deck if you may want to do so. So yeah, pretty straightforward. If you want the best of both worlds and you're not into cheesy 20, uh, 2006 Hannah Montana songs, I suggest GIFs, um, your friendly problem solver from, uh, from, from the neighborhood, I guess. It's a German saying. I'm not sure if it translates into English well. Uh, anyways, uh, my favorite example being Wavebreak, which is, again, Alan Dang, who co-created this talk, also uh, created or was part of creating this uh, pitch deck 
of WaveBreak. Here are some still images, which already sort of display some core information that's very valuable to the pitch and will convey some information, such as the visual aesthetics of the game and some core features. Uh, but in comparison, if you look at GIFs, really, let me go back and forth a little bit, they will immediately convey way more information to you. It's somewhat similar to the screenshot theory, as in finding or figuring out the perfect screenshot to communicate your title uh, is, a, is equally, if not um, more intense, sorry, it is equally hard or even more intense when you're creating GIFs you may want to consider setting up development tools from the get-go to really capture uh, the right moments, to be able to stage the right moments within the, the game, not only for pitching, but also for things like Screenshot Saturday, marketing materials, and so on. I, I used to work for a development company. I know how it is to try and figure out the perfect screenshot or the, the perfect GIF, and without the right tools to manually set them up, that can cause you a lot of stressful working days, especially if that's something that you have to do sort of on the side because it's, it, because it's not your main responsibi uh, responsibility. So from the get-go, consider GIFs to be perfect for implementation in your pitch deck, unless it's a PDF, which we'll get to a little bit further down the road. Now, this is one of my favorite slides just because of the, because of the GIF again. Uh, to wrap up the first part of content, please don't treat your pitch deck like a game design document. You're supposed to summarize the core pitch of the project and not give me a full breakdown of the entire game. The same goes for the for like an extensive lore deep dive, a narrative deep dive. It's always to it's always okay to provide more information further down the line once the opposing party or the party on the other side of the table gets hooked about your game pitch. But uh, at first, don't make sure to don't over overload them with information and material. We'll get to the reason behind this in a second. Speaking of design, uh, incredibly important for a visual presentation. A pitch deck is not only about the co the content that you're trying to deliver, but also about sort of tricking the human brain uh, or tricking the human eye to focus on specific aspects of your pitch deck. This is an interesting statistic by uh, the by the um, track or by a platform called DocSend, which is there to share and track files. Uh, in the startup world, the average the average pitch deck is looked at for about three minutes and forty four seconds, which means I would say on average or at the bare minimum, you probably spend fifty a hundred times more time working on your pitch deck then it'll actually be looked at by some parties that you're pitching to you do not have a lot of time to hook someone we try to figure out how that sort of conveys or how that um how the time compares in the video games industry again through our questionnaire and uh, by asking quite frankly how long do publishers spend looking at the deck now the results here that you can see sort of paint a pretty straightforward pi picture. The majority of people look at a game pitch document for less than 10 minutes. So making sure that all your messaging can be conveyed within that time frame is quite important. Keep in mind, most of these publishers when answering this question were, uh, were considering a deck that had al uh, already sort of hooked them. So they were going into a deck a little bit more extensively meaning that 20 plus minutes is not an average time that someone spends on a pitch deck. At least I question I, I question the realism behind that. If you receive even just 50 decks 
throughout the year, which is a ver on the very lower end. Uh, 20 minutes is already a quite extensive amount of time to take a look at a pitch deck without knowing that it will be uh, interesting at a core level to you. There's some, some interesting quotes in here uh, that were also part of the questionnaire submitted by some developers. Just take a sip to drink while you check out the quotes. <clears throat> Oops, sorry about that. All right, so as you can probably see by just looking at these uh, sort of glimpse into, into the questionnaire, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 10 minutes at third pass, which is sort of the maximum for, for this particular um, respondent to, to the questionnaire is, on, is quite low uh, overall. And you, again, need to keep that in mind. On the design side, uh, it's sort of going hand in hand with what we just discussed. Let's talk about overload. There's a really cool image on the right side of the slide. We just uh, took that out or um, yeah, added some information on top to make sure uh, to keep things a little bit redacted out of uh, protectants, I guess. If you only have five minutes or if, if you're only going to spend three to five minutes on a pitch deck, how much time do you really think will be going into this particular slide? There's a ton of information. I should mention this slide has since been reworked and the, slide, the slides these days look significantly better and are less crowded. But overall, how much information do you consider to be you're going to read through or even remember at the end of the day once you've once you've gone through the entire deck. This is too much information by a far margin, um, which sort of transitions perfectly into the next topic, the four types of readers. In reading English, there are statistically four types of readers. There's the skimmers that will just catch glimpses of things, so you will need to make sure that things will catch the eye at first sight. You have the scanners that will read some snippets, sometimes maybe at the top and the bottom of a page, maybe something that's extensively highlighted. That's sort of it. You have the detailed readers that will be your bread and butter, but make sure to don't waste your time uh, with things that they don't really need to know at, at this first re read through. And the important part here is you cannot plan for each individual reader. So you will need to create a, build, a, a deck that builds for everyone and keeps everyone in mind. Now, how do you do that? My favorite slide, wave break again. For skimmers, you have GIFs that catch the, the reader's attention. They will immediately focus on those, get an understanding of what they're looking at. Done. Scanners, they will read the subtitles. That will give them idea of what to expect. Obviously, they also have the GIFs to glimpse over. Done. And then you have the detailed readers. Looking at the subtitles uh, or the, the, um, yeah, the subtitles underneath the, um, underneath the yellow highlighted text, giving them some additional information. They can look at the animated GIFs more extensively, really analyze what's going on there and have a lot of information in a visually less crowded, uh, less crowded slide overall. Perfect, you've, you've done what you wanted to achieve. Writing for comprehension is just incredible, incredibly important. The average person in the US reach, uh, reads, as, uh, reads at a teenage level, uh, that's something I figured out when Alan quite charmingly during one of our preparation calls compared my reading skills to one of an eighth grade uh, reader in, in the US. I, I'll take that uh, as a um, as someone whose first language isn't English. That's probably more accurate. Maybe it's even a lower percentage overall. Uh, and you should keep in mind, while most industry veterans are very intelligent people, 
why would you want to make their job even more difficult? Make sure to communicate things at a very, not necessarily child, childish level, but teenage level at best. It's an interesting statistic on writing for comprehension, comparing these four different pieces, uh, novels, or at the uh, at the very right end, an academic uh, academic paper. Uh, per, based on this previous data, this chart shows the percentage of Americans who can read these books. And yes, while you might be able to write an, an, uh, at an academic level, why do you want to risk uh, frustrating all of these other peoples that will not be um, that will not be able to analyze the information sent over at the first level? This is not about making something uh, making something sound smart or writing liter literature. It's about writing for utility. So keep things easy and simple. Writing, writing for comprehension also has some other, uh, some other bullet points to keep in mind. One major concept per page at best. We already saw that uh, as part of the wave break pitch deck, We're seeing this in this example as well. None more than that. You can add some additional slides, which we'll get to in a second, not overdoing it, but one major concept per page should be a general rule. Highlighting and bolding is super straightforward and easy. This slide, of course, for example, on my end, I'm not highlighting any of my words myself, but keeping it simple and highlighting what is at the core level important and what should be grabbing someone's attention first is pretty straightforward. Be economical with your words. Already talked about that uh, with the four different uh, types of readers and keep the bullet points as minimal as possible. We had four on this presentation slide. This presentation slide is already a little bit too crowded in my opinion. The pitch deck slide that you can see is is sort of at the maximum level, but still very well executed. So slide construction, another questionnaire topic. How many slides are preferred in a pitch deck? Not quite sure how the zero to five came up. That seems like too little, at least again, jumping into a more subjective topic. Um, you want to convey a certain amount of information. Zero to five might end up being quite crammed into these five decks, at, uh, five slides at most. So I'm saying five to 15 is more realistic and probably, probably your best approach. Anything beyond that is still doable, I would say. If you're going beyond 20 slides, that's getting quite extensive. Uh, I remember once receiving, receiving a pitch deck with 60 plus slides, 30 of which were just screenshots and mockups. All of those can be shared separately or later on. No one is going to open up a, a presentation with 65 slides and be like, hey, that's, that's great. I, that's exactly how much information I wanted. Keep it to 10 to 15. 15 seems like a good sweet spot. Slide construction otherwise, if you want to have a very, very good template, I would um, recommend you to explore this one by Gwen Foster. She's the senior biz dev uh, at Robert Teddy uh, alongside Calum Underwood, and she's working on Superhot Presents. So she knows what she's talking to, and these are some really great templates. You can either find it on Twitter or follow this bit.ly link. Customization is something that I've seen come up more and more. Um, it's, it's interesting to see since we're getting more and more publishers out there, more and more people with money to invest into, into game, game development projects, which is also having an effect on people pitching in more and more partners, at, at least according to what I've seen over the most recent years. And still more and more people are taking the customization approach, which I actually quite appreciate. It's not a, it's not something that's mandatory, far from, uh, I would prefer for you to not spend an extensive amount on customizing your deck to, to everyone's needs, 
But if you want to do so, uh, looking up the publishers that you're planning on pitching, in this example, Raw Fury, Tiny Build, and Whitethorn Games, and uh, checking out if there's any material online, either interviews, blog posts, Twitter threads, or in this case, some, um, some information on their websites on what they expect to see in a pitch deck, that will go a long way. Uh, I, I personally would recommend going that more custom approach if you're targeting less publishers. Overall, I think that's the way to go. I know that's not always the approach that everyone wants to take, but focusing on a small amount of publishers when pitching and making sure that the information that they're expecting in a pitch deck is also in that pitch deck will help you. Otherwise, if you can't find information online on, on websites or blog posts, there's a bunch of scouts, developer relations folks, business development members of publishing teams or consultants overall that you may ask for information or that will uh, maybe have like Twitter threads on their profile somewhere. So keeping that in mind, sticking around and, and seeing what these fine folks have to have to say could be quite helpful further down the road for you as well. On the narrative side, this is a wonderful example. Uh, the Flame and the Flood, the pitch deck from a couple of years ago, uh, has a very, very beautiful visual and narr narrative uh, flow throughout the deck. It uses uh, visuals and words. It tells the story of their game. It tells the story of their team and it connects with the readers on a more emotional level. When we hear a story that resonates with us, our levels of horm uh, hormones called oxy uh, oxytocin, uh, oxy yeah, oxytocins, uh, or something along those lines increases. So um, focusing on having something that can also connect on an emotional level with the, the party that you're pitching is a very good step. Otherwise, and I won't go too far into this, as I have already clearly stated, I'm not a visual designer uh, or graphics designer overall. Visual deck design is incredibly important uh, as part of the narrative that we already spoke about, but also uh, to, to make sure that um, what is important already sticks out to even address the skimmers on a reader level. Humans are very visually, visually driven. It makes, it makes absolute sense to have an actual designer take a look at the deck. I know it costs money. I know it's not always a possibility for everyone. If it is, um, yeah, it's a worthwhile investment. It doesn't mean automatically you will make back that investment through, through a publishing deal, but at, at the core level, what you can do, or at minimum, what you can personally do, even if you're not a graphics designer, visual designer, is taking a look at the elements of art and the principles of design and trying to make sure that those are somewhat addressed throughout your pitch deck. Couple more examples of like really, really visually stunning presentations can be found here. Uh, Ottoman Empire, Star Strike, and Cube One, I believe, in this case. Really, really beautiful, sort of immediately stand out. Nothing else to add. About the format, that's that's something I, I tend to uh, have strong, quite strong opinions about. There are a majority of people that just prefer to get PDFs for, for multiple reasons. Ease of use, they're usually they max out at a certain size because um, certain email clients won't allow you to send them. So usually sticking uh, sticking to under 10 megabytes, which is again, easy to share in Slacks as like task um, add-ons in Asana, Discord, and so on, pretty straightforward. You can share Google Drive links or Google Slides links, absolutely. That's, uh, that is a valid approach. And I'll explain in a second why, why in some cases might be uh, the favorable approach, but at the end of the day, uh, with a PDF, you at least know the pit, the party you've pitched has seen the 
the pitch deck that you wanted to send over uh, when you're updating your own slides on Google Slide, the, pitch, the pitched party might already have taken a look and not check in again. PDF, that whole worry is out of the equation. Now, Google Slides versus PDFs, for me, sort of the, the major question, whereas PDFs I also sort of factor into the, the PowerPoint category. So still imagery versus uh, moving imagery. A very, very, very helpful factor with Google Slides is the use of GIFs, which is something that's getting more and more common, more and more appealing overall, and which is something that I quite enjoy. My personal preference, and this is again very subjective, is attaching a PDF to, to an email and also linking to a Google Slide version. Doesn't really matter if you address it in your email, might as well say, hey, I attached a PDF version, here's, here's a Google Slides version with some, with some moving imagery. Uh, at the end of the day, just having both versions available can be helpful. If you want to stick to one, stick to one. Don't mix and match like every couple of weeks when you're sending over updates. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Here is comparison to PDF version or the PowerPoint version. As we've seen, the static versus moving imagery comparison. And then finally, to sort of wrap up the design topic is other uses. We already talked about publishers. There's platform holders that are looking for unique experiences that can add value to, to their platform. There's media and press that you may want to use your pitch deck for. Probably a slightly altered pitch deck, significantly shorter, more of the TLDR version that I talked about earlier. Consumers and audiences, sometimes um, it, it's very, very rare that you see that, but a very good example is um, like just postmortems on Twitter. These days, audiences, consumers, players are more interested into the business behind working in games. So sharing your deck further down the line and telling people what your approach was, why, uh, how things developed over time in comparison between the final game and the pitch deck initially is quite, quite interesting. So keeping in mind that at the end of the day, you may want to share your pitch deck with an audience is, is something worth exploring. Uh, the Backbone developers did that uh, quite recently. And again, we'll talk about that in just a second. Obviously, publishers, investors, and then within the team, if you're starting with a pitch deck as like a elite designer that's currently exploring new ideas within the team, it's not unprecedented for you to create your idea and summarize it as part of a pitch deck that may then be alternated and changed and updated over time and finally end up being the publisher pitch deck. So having a pitch deck is not only necessary or not only beneficial with when you're trying to get some money getting a, or get a publisher involved. Convincement, uh, that's the uh, third chapter, I believe, of this of this talk. And uh, yes, it's actually a word. I had to look it up at, at Google. It, it's, it's in the English dictionary, which I wasn't aware of. It's an interesting quote by a industry, uh, a trusted industry colleague that uh, asked to be or stay anonymous. Unlike children, publishers are not willing to imagine the best case scenario for your project, which is very accurate. Not saying that children will always be kind to you and, and if, uh, and only shower you in, in praise. Uh, but overall, a publisher has to come with a certain amount of skepticism. It's part of the job. As you're investing money and resources into a project, you need to be careful to some extent. You need to be um, certain that at the end of the day, what you're investing your resources into will, will make back your initial investment and ideally be worth it for both the development team and the publisher slash investor slash platform, uh, platform holder in terms of return on investment. 
In 2020, to put that into a certain light, we at TAG are probably going to sign, I'd say, less than 0.5% of games that we'll take a look at throughout the entire year. I know that sounds quite low, but it's not really unprecedented. It's something that most publishers sort of, at the end of the day, end up around. I've heard 1%, 2% as well, but going beyond 5% is pretty rare, I would say. Uh, the best comparison is probably project ideas as a whole. If you're sort of an idea kind of guy or guy being in a, in a um, well, uh, folk, I guess is, uh, is the right way to express this. If you're an idea person within a team and uh, coming up with, with ideas on a regular basis, not necessarily as, as just your main job, but just because you're passionate and are considering what to work on next, you'll probably be coming up with dozens, if not hundreds of ideas. Most of them will never go anywhere, will be scrapped, will be set aside to just to reminisce, uh, to, to consider further down the, uh, the, the road. Um, many will never be exploited again, but that's sort of the closest comparison that I could come up with when it comes to actually convincing a party to invest into your project. There's, at the end of the day, there's uh, three steps to actually convince someone or three steps that you have to take to end up convincing the opposing party. One, you have to convince someone that the game should be made and will have an audience. Two, you have to convince someone that it, uh, it's worth whatever you're asking for in terms of budget or investment in terms of time, resources whatsoever, and that you can pull it off within the budget and timeline that you're proposing. And three, it can be made by you, ideally only be made by you. So yeah, this, this whole topic can be somewhat um, underlined as convincing the partner. To do so, especially if you're new to pitching, you will have to figure out a good balance between confidence and what I call realism. I didn't wanna say pessimism or, or overall be too negative, but I, I understand that if you, if you have a lot of energy and love for whatever project you're working on, that uh, that energy will also transition into some optimism, oftentimes, co confidence or optimism. And at the end of the day, you need to make sure you're staying grounded and therefore realistic with what's possible. Or to be a little bit more clear, if I ask a, a party that's pitching us, hey, so interesting project. We were just curious how, how you will be able to pull off this certain element or how do you, how you envision this specific part of your pitch. And your answer is just, trust us, we know how to do this, we've done this plenty of times, you will run into roadblocks because part of being someone that's investing money and resources is unfortunately being a little bit skeptic at first. Now, this, the, the easiest way of convincing someone that a game should be made is having data available. And this is a fantastic example that was taken from Twitter. As I mentioned, the Backbone developers recently had sort of like a Twitter thread for them on uh, how they pitched, how they approached that topic, and how they eventually signed with uh, Raw Fury as a, as a publisher. They had a strong following that they could already uh, point to, which has grown extensively ever since, but already back then, some impressive numbers across their Discord, Twitter, um, VK, and on, and on Reddit. VK being very much a Russian-focused platform, so a strong following, especially in Russia, which is a very valid and interesting market these days and have had already run a strong Kickstarter campaign. So all of these informations are all of this information bundled together alongside the wish list and the amount of people that have already played their prologue sort of set a precedent for, hey, this is an interesting game. This is something that could have a strong audience at the end of the day and that it's worth exploring further. 
again, this is just coming from a from a very um, outside perspective, having not talked to Raw Fury and their their opinion about this pitch deck. It's just more about generally how to approach how to approach this topic. If you already tried some marketing feeds overall, uh, it's definitely valid and great to share. No matter if you've rolled out some content as the Backbone developers did, started community engagement as they did as well, or even had a Kickstarter, a Kickstarter campaign. If you have some impressive data to share, why not? Go ahead, please please make sure to, to do so. Uh, it will help the, the publisher and, and, and investor to get an idea of what they're looking at. But on the other side of the spectrum, boosting about a very small following might be counterintuitive from time to time. And you may not want to focus on it too extensively. If a publisher is looking for a project that will sell tens, if not hundreds, hundreds of thousands of units, and, you bo uh, and you're boosting, boasting, boosting, I believe boosting about very low numbers, uh, there might be also some form of disconnect between expectations. A publisher might be looking for a title that can perform extensively better than what you're looking to perform at um, with your title as of right now. Marketing analysis can be a, another approach to this topic. If you don't have your own data available yet, or even if you do, it's smart to look at the market. One, for your own orientation, uh, that comes down to the goals that you're trying to set, how much money you're willing to invest yourself, or how much money you think will have to be invested into, into the project, into marketing to make it as successful as the rest of the, the leading titles within the current market, but also to, to give the partner a first impression of how you position yourself. Uh, this is a very good example by a befriended dev, a good, good overview of the market by somewhat comparable titles, the unsimulators, it's great to have an overview of competitors, and you should do the research when designing your game nevertheless. The only note I have, um, a little bit more um, diplomatic in this case, about this specific slide is you shouldn't necessarily be looking at competitors that are just starting at 500,000 units sold. That is, while that is part of the market, that I would say is probably the top 1%. Uh, at at this point, so be a little, little bit more realistic at um, at an overall market analysis level. This is an interesting um, interesting thing that we've seen quite quite extensively in in the past, uh, especially around roguelike pitches in in twenty twenty. It's almost guaranteed to get something something like Dead Cells, uh, Slate Aspire, Binding of Isaac, FTL, or Darkest Dungeon as part of a pitch deck included in in terms of market analysis. Not necessarily all of these aforementioned, but oftentimes more than one. And I really appreciate the optimism and I, I would aim and hope for uh, whatever title you, you're creating to, at the end of the day, be as successful as, as these other titles. But that's sort of where we go back to the realism aspect. Um, this is not what sales predictions should be looking like. Ideally, if you want to include three titles in, in a slide such as this, include something that's that's a little bit more pessimistic on the on the lower level of, of success, median success, and, and something that's a little bit more optimistic, such as these three titles. Keep in mind, according to uh, Mike's, Mike Rose's research, I believe in 2018 at, at the latest, uh, GDC, the average game sells about 1,500 uh, units in its first year on Steam, not millions. So a market analysis that looks like this is not really a market analysis. It's a dream scenario that is pretty unreflective of what the market actually looks like. Now, if you want to 
go a little bit further down uh, down that process, you might even want to consider putting together or having a professional sales forecast be put together. One example that I came up with here is, is EDAR. It's not an ad. It's just one of the respected partners out there in this industry. Make sure to ask your peers. I'm sure they have other companies to, to recommend as well. Um, yeah, but this is sort of the next step that you may want to take to get a data-driven sales forecast or an, an expected sales forecast put together by, by a company that is focusing on this as their main point of income. Target audience is similarly beneficial to uh, to maybe a market analysis. It, it may drive some design decisions behind your game. Uh, to be quite honest, even in 2020, a shattering amount of pitches that we get have a target audience that's male, 18 to 35, lives in Europe or in North America. Well, sure, that may be the case for a small percentage of titles. The, the amount of titles that I uh, that I receive or the amount of pitches that, that we receive that are focusing on that target audience and not considering the other 90 plus percent of the games industry consumers is quite unfortunate. Um, it's super helpful to see how your visions and potentially our visions align. Usually, usually we as a partner will make up our own mind and then sort of see if there's any overlap or any big red flags. Um, it, similar in a similar way with the market analysis, if the visions completely misalign, that might be a signal to have a extensive conversation. Because at the end of the day, if you're targeting a specific audience with your title, us as as a publisher are targeting targeting a different audience with our marketing, that will really not help out either side. Um, same goes for for goals in terms of of success, and we'll. We'll talk about that a little bit further down the line as well. But if your goal is to earn 3.5 million US dollars and we think it's realistic to target half a million USD within its first year, again, even if we hit our goal and we're happy, it will cause some bad blood because you might not be so, um, so happy about the outcome. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. So yeah, uh, one example to to talk about when it comes to your target audience, a good example on our end is Monster Prom, a title that we published. It's a visual novel, multiplayer dating sim, incredibly LGBTQ plus friendly. And um, if it would be, as a, as a random example, it would be quite frustrating and maybe causing some red flags in the initial conversation if, if a developer was uh, proposing to focus on the generic white dude, 30 plus hardcore gamer, which they didn't, just to be clear, but I wanted to th put things into perspective. For developers, important, this is not mandatory, but helpful for you and us, as mentioned, not only for, for the pitching process, but also to make up your own mind to consider when designing your game. Now let's talk about money. 
score, uh, a very scary topic for many, especially sort of first time pitching developers. A dev time is hard to predict, but in most cases, at the end of the day, if, if the partnership moves along, you will end up signing a contract that states you're going to be delivering X product for X amount within uh, for, for Y amount in Z timeline. That's just something you will have to get comfortable with. And you may discuss further down the line as well with the publisher and sort of tweak and figure out. But it's quite helpful to have like your first initial idea going into the conversation, what you're targeting. If you're looking at a three-year development timeline and uh, a budget of 3.5 million US dollars, and we are currently looking for titles launching next year and have a budget of $300,000 available, it's pretty straightforward, it's pretty easy. I'm not going to waste your time just tell you, hey, we don't align there. Let's talk again in the future about a potential different project. This is uh, taken from, from a pitch deck again as an example, just all the data removed. It's a quite lovely overview that, that I enjoyed. It's pretty straightforward. It gives me an idea of how much money is being invested into which, which of these categories. Um, one thing that should be mentioned is this is not to talk about budgeting. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of rules here. But yeah, if, if, you, want, if you want to hear talk about budgeting, there's some fantastic ones uh, online. You, you may as well just Google them or ping me on Twitter and, and I can always point some, some good resources out. Rule number one, communicate your budget clearly, as in this case, if the numbers hadn't been removed by myself, uh, grants and external funding, unless signed, is not something you should, you should identify as being definitely part of, of the budget. I like the little note, I'm not sure you can see that in uh, right here, uh, the pending approval star might not be high resolution enough. My, my apologies for that, um, but it's quite quite good to to point that out. Otherwise, even if you know someone at uh, at a government grant uh, organization, for example, that does not equal funding received, I need to know that budget is uh, secured. Otherwise, you may add it in here. Uh, the horror scenario is you sign a contract that states X amount of money will be spent, X amount of money will be coming from, from these different entities, or the developer will be putting this amount into the project, and then that government grant fails and you don't receive those funds, and you still have committed to spending them, although you no longer have that money available. Same goes for prize money. Uh, not, I don't know how it is on an international level, but oftentimes here in Germany, when you receive prize money for from like government organizations or culturally funded organizations, then that money needs to be spent within a certain spectrum or within a spectrum, a, a certain location. So in this example, again, a mock-up uh, prize money can only be spent in the USA. If that's the case, just make sure to include that. Maybe you're working with an international team and therefore it's important for me to know, hey, this money can only be spent on these core team members. Just take another, uh, another sip of water. <clears throat> All right. Uh, clarify what is included. Obviously, uh, is, is console supporting included? Is QOA included? Is marketing costs? Uh, are marketing costs included? Or is that something that uh, you see the publisher handling and therefore paying for? Personally speaking, I'd say most publishers should have a good idea of what they're uh, what they will have to be spending on a project. Nevertheless. It'll be a it will be a conversation that money may be recouped, so it may end up in uh, in a contract anyways. Uh, but there's no need or no no one is forcing you to include that data as long as you make sure to convey that information. Hey, 
this is something that we see the publisher taking care of. We therefore have not included it in the budget. Perfect. Um, finding the right balance is also something to keep in mind. How do you set up a fair budget? There's multiple factors at the end of the day. If less funding is required, you'll be in a better position to negotiate for a higher revenue share, potentially. On the other hand side, you'll lose the room for negotiation with some partners that may want to try and lower your budget overall. Always comes down to the party that you'll be negotiating with. I think it's never a problem to, to reach out to some developers that have talked or that have worked with that um, publisher already and get some information upfront on how to how to approach this this pitch, this initial pitch, or at least further down the uh, further down the line, the uh, contract negotiation. Often you see you see something like spent X amount of money in uh, on this project so far, which is something I really appreciate to see. Gives me an idea on how much time and money was put into the current vertical slice or prototype or whatever already exists. And uh, therefore I can have, or I can sort of generate somewhat of an impression for myself, how much money, uh, what this amount of money that I'm pitching to or pitching into a project will be creating in terms of content scope and so on uh, polish as well. Make sure to don't inflate your numbers. If I see a playable build and the supposed budget already spent on it is incredibly high, I will have, um, I will question that you can fulfill whatever you're pitching right now with the amount of money you're asking for. And sometimes it will just be outside of my personal funding range that I uh, that we can invest as, as a company. Contingent, contingency is fine, at least from my point of view. Again, that's more of a subjective topic. Uh, I've, I usually see anywhere from like 10 to 30%, something within that range in many cases. Again, make sure to, to mention it in the budget, be upfront with it. Um, I, I know some people are a little bit afraid that a publisher will try to then argue against that contingency and scrapping that from the budget. You, you'll that'll That should ultimately just make your decision easier. If a publisher doesn't want to include the contingency that you definitely want to have included, cool, you can you can uh, finalize that conversation and move on and have uh, conversations with others. And then finally, budget options is something that uh, many people have actually asked about in the past uh, when I talked to them about pitch decks. And quite honestly, in our whole questionnaire that we had people fill out, the answer was pretty inconclusive. Uh, if you do, make sure it's clear what is included in the different budget options. Don't call them the tier one, tier two, tier three, and mention different budget options, but don't go into detail what is included in the budget options. Those sort of uh, completely defeat the purpose. Just be straightforward. doesn't hurt. Um, I personally don't have a problem with seeing multiple budget options. I know other people want to see a focus on the dream vision. What do you need to completely finish up whatever you had in mind with your initial pitch? That's perfect. And then you can go from there. Some budgeting tips um, created by uh, by a buddy of mine, a good resource, a good tool, the guesstimator for Steam to get an idea of, of how much money a, a project may have made through Steam, factors in sales estimates, business costs, uh, sales tax, and other costs. Uh, if you want to calculate a budget, check it out. Uh, it's available online. Uh, I'll, I'll tweet about it as well. And uh, there's a bunch of really, really helpful tools out there that I'll be sort of assembling over the next couple of weeks and try to put into a Twitter thread. So either ping me or wait for that thread to be posted eventually once I have time again. On the timeline side, this is sort of what I envisioned the perfect one-sheeter overview. Again, remove the data, it includes budget and timeline. Um, 
another approach as uh, for, to the budget focuses on where the money is coming from and budget and funding required definitely can be separated. So that's fine. On the, on the timeline side, it's help. It's a super helpful first overview. Further down the line, again, a more concrete overview will be beneficial, but it already sort of tells me, hey, this is what I can expect as a release window, some milestones. It gives me insight into uh, knowing how, how the team envisions their project to, to sort of follow through and um, how much resources, of course, will be required. Make sure to don't mix currencies um, overall, just sort of a small little tip. And overall, also, you can include burn rates. That's something that we publishers enjoy to see, just to understand how much money on a per month, on average, you're, you're spending. Uh, maybe putting that a little bit into perspective in, in a follow-up slide or even a follow-up conversation can be quite beneficial as well to talk about, hey, you have an extensively high amount of um, QA costs right now. Let's try and figure out a way of lowering them. Another great overview for, for uh, development top timeline. This again has been tweaked. This is not accurate, but it goes a little bit more into detail on exact windows of how, how long something will be worked on. Yeah. Uh, the final thing I should mention about timelines being off, that can have major consequences on all parties involved, not only yourself, but also the publisher. It can make a partner very uh, off planning. So generally speaking, if I'm a publisher, I have a timeline, I'm signing X amount of titles. Those titles are being spread out across a launch timeline. So I'm not having all the work pile up in one month. And if one title is postponed into the month of a different title, that could have just pretty big consequences. I may have to postpone your title much further because within that launch window, I don't have time to do so. Sometimes with particularly harsh contracts or uh, publishers that are not willing to have a more extensive conversation and see what caused the delay in development, you may have to launch your project in that launch window. So you commit to a timeline, you have to stick to it in many cases. That could cause some big big trouble for your title. If it's not ready, it could generally really uh, hurt its sales potential for the ex for the entire, well, for the entire project and mean that you don't recoup your own investment, that the publisher doesn't recoup their own investment and that the title just doesn't get the love it deserves. And more impactful, it can come with legal consequences depending on the contract. If you miss milestones, if you did, if you don't hit the timeline that you contractually are obligated to fulfill, there may be clauses in the contract that then sort of, well, yeah, cause some some trouble for you and uh, some legal consequences to discuss with with your publisher. No one really wants to deal with that, neither the publisher nor you. So make sure to keep that in mind when signing the contract and when putting together an initial timeline. Team information, finally, as sort of a step of convincing someone that your team and maybe only your team can pull off the project that you're pitching. A ground rule, everything that you include about the team should underline why you can create what you're pitching with the resources that you're asking for. Crucial information should be a team overview, maybe just add the contact information back in there so it's somewhere within the pitch deck. Sometimes pitch decks get passed along and your email is uh, is only available to to one member of, of the company, so on. Just just include it. Uh, previous work of the company can be helpful. I would uh, mostly focus on that when again it underlines that you can that you can deliver what you're working on right now or what you're pitching. 
if you've worked on the Call of Duty, uh, Call of Duty franchise without too much context added, it underlines that you've been part of shipping a game, but it doesn't tell me at all what part you were in that procedure. Did you even work on uh, the narrative aspect now that you're pitching yourself as a narrative designer for your own project? Did you maybe work in an entirely different department? Were you part of the Call of Duty team at, uh, at Treyarch or an outsourced art team? All of that information can be helpful. Make sure to focus on what is relevant to your pitch. And then finally, the ask, or as I, uh, I know I, I look quite young, like to title hashtag relationship goals. Topics to potentially cover in sort of that final slide of your presentation, as at least that's how I would envision it, is what kind of funding are you looking for? Uh, if you have a revenue share in mind that you are not open to negotiate, underline that already in the, in the pitch deck. Again, it'll make the back and forth very, very quick. If the publisher is not open to it, then you can finalize that conversation. What kind of promotion uh, work are you looking for? Marketing, PR, community development? Do you do you want to handle stuff with some of that stuff yourself internally? Do you want to work together with a publisher on sort of figuring out the best approach here? Porting, transmedia partnerships, QA, and then very importantly, IP ownership. If you have any heavy stances on any of this or are, you, are looking for any support, make sure to mention it. Again, at the end of the day, it will it will um, speed up a conversation quite extensively um, if you're if you're going back and forth only to figure out at the end of the day, oh, the publisher wanted to have the IP from the very start. I'm not comfortable with that. Well, then all, uh, everything that we've discussed these past couple of weeks is sort of, well, was wasted time. My final thought or my final thing to add, honesty, be honest from the get-go. Why do you want to start off a potential relationship with incorrect, misleading information? Um, that will always come up eventually further down the line. I, I believe if if there's something uh, inaccurate or something that was purposely hidden or just wasn't really expressively talked about, that um, it will surface further down the road. You don't want to have that be part of the relationship. Be honest, if that hurts your negotiation tactics, then, or your negotiation process overall, then the publisher might just not be for you. It's fine to skip information initially and get back to the partner on details later. If you don't have that information, it's important. Do not make stuff up. You'd rather not have a partnership, uh, enter a partnership than enter a partnership with misleading information. Oh, okay. And then just a summary of what we just discussed, what a good, good pitch deck should tell someone what the game is about, why your game needs to be made, why the game need, uh, what the game needs from a partner, your team a your team's ability to make that game and your passion to make specifically this game. Some sources and co contributors, a bunch of blog posts were created by these people that we um, took some information out of and uh, a bunch of people in here that filled out our questionnaire that I'm very thankful for. Um, and I unfortunately didn't update this slide but yeah, thank you for, for listening. These are mine and Alan's contact details. All right, that's it. Thanks so much. Do we have any any questions? Ah, there we go. Hello, Jay. Hey, man. That was awesome. Um, yeah, we do. Indy, which questions have we not gotten to yet? You're muted, dude. <clears throat> uh, 
There we go. Nightwolf on Twitch asks, are there any publishers you can directly contact via Discord versus only email? I mean, theoretically speaking, if you figure out the Discord mess, uh, Discord idea of someone, you can you can literally contact everyone. Uh, I don't think it's the preferred way uh, of initial contact. If someone if someone offers you or sends over their Discord ID for like quicker communication, that's sort of like step two or step three. Uh, I, I believe the initial reach out, ideally also to keep things sort of consistent and in one place via email is the best approach. Uh, I prefer that. I, I know that inf if information is passed along to me via via LinkedIn as a pitch um, and then not followed up via email or even via Twitter DMs where I've received pitches before, things just have the potential to get lost. If you want to make sure there's clear communication, all of us have their email, all of us will get back to you when they can and probably not lose their your email within their inbox. Discord is more of a next step, I would say, uh, for, for more well, yeah, quicker communication overall once you've already established a connection and made sure that the the other party is interested in your pitch. Yeah, because if you message someone on Discord and, it's, and, and then at the end of the day, they have 20 other messages above yours and most people are not going to go through all their stuff. So email, yeah, everything's taken track, taken, kept track of. All right, here we go. We've got another question from Miona, Mianona from Twitch. Do you encounter Minner? Minner, many similar looking decks, and do you think there's something wrong with using a template content and design wise? Uh, yeah, quite often. Well, um, on, on the on this sort of core level, I, I oftentimes see like PowerPoint um, templates pop up, sort of the standard thing that he's that you already saw and probably used back in the day on um, well, in, in high school, university, when, when creating your, your presentations whatsoever. Generally, I don't think content-wise there's a problem using a template. I would generally recommend to go with a with a graphic designer as that will make your deck potentially stand out even further, which as I mentioned, I, I prefer. I understand that financial resources are, are not always given. So if, if you don't have those available to you, then yeah, a, a pitch deck template should not be uh, ultimately what causes a publisher to go in a different direction. Okay, another one from Nightwolf. Can you send a pitch deck for a game in development for game level design jobs or community management job that a publisher or dev team has open? Okay, let me just try to understand that. So basically, Nightwolf, what you're asking is someone, is, a publisher has a job opportunity open and you're sending a pitch deck to, um, to underline your ability to work or to take over that position, I, I would assume. Um, more of a, like a hiring or HR related question. Personally, if, the, if that's the intention of behind your question, and if not so, I apologize, please feel free to clarify in, in the chat. Uh, yeah, absolutely, why not? I mean, uh, I'm, I am definitely no expert on, uh, on, the, on a hiring process or uh, being in charge of HR or anything like that. Uh, but personally speaking, if you can underline your uh, your talent or generally your abilities by something that you've worked on before, such as a pitch deck, such as a project. Sure, why not? Personally, I would have to say that it's probably not a good idea because when companies are hiring, 
what they it's best to just have a resume with text because they will scrape your resume with the text and then put it all in their database and if you just have a pdf file it, that stuff will get jumbled i do agree uh, that's a very valid point especially for a large company for a smaller company maybe but for mm -hmm. a large company the it's i feel like it's just best to just have a regular written resume nothing flashy nothing or anything like that um here we go. Okay, let's have some fun. Has a question. What are some common deal breakers? Who? All right. Um, very much depends on the publisher by publisher basis. Uh, I, I know for a fact there are plenty of publishers out there uh, that require require you to sign over your IP. It's it is not common throughout all of uh, all of sort of the publishing world or investment world. Um, most independent developer uh, publishers, I. I would say are shifting more towards the approach of, hey, it's the developer's IP, we don't touch that. Uh, that can be the deal breaker for, for either side, I would say. The publisher wants your IP, you don't want to send, send that over or sign it over, deal breaker, uh, vice versa, same way. Uh, the easiest deal breaker for us is the funding required is too high. We have, uh, it, it sort of depends uh, on how much money we've, we've already spent in uh, each and every year, how much uh, financial contributions we, we have open and uh, what amount of projects we're still looking to sign that year. But our project funding available can vary as well throughout even a couple of months. So if you, as mentioned, are looking for X times the amount of what we're willing to fund, deal breaker, pretty straightforward. Uh, a pretend like uh, a financing structure or i guess a uh, premium versus free to play structure can be pretty straightforward a pretty easy deal breaker to identify we're a premium publisher someone comes to us with a free free to play title that's a no uh, and for us and this is again a very specific part we like to be very involved in the process we're not the publisher that that will send over a check once a month check in how things are going and then disappear again we have discords with uh, all of our publishers and uh, all of our developers on an individual basis and like to be in sort of daily communication, basically. Uh, if that's something that a developer is not looking for, then we're probably not the right partner. So yeah, it's unfortunately very, um, very much a case by case basis. It's just a little insight into how we consider things. I should also point out to uh, one point here in, in the chat, I'm, I'm not drinking. This is like a German equivalent of Coke. Oh, it's okay. It's okay to drink. <laughs> yeah, we, we end up drinking on the show quite a lot. So it's, cool. it's okay. I mean, I drink, but <laughs> not right now. Uh, also, Nightwolf, if you, we just made live on anchor.fm slash indie game business the newest. It's uh, about getting a job. It was with Mark Mencher, and he goes into all kinds of detail about uh, applying for jobs. And he, he, talks about LinkedIn, he talks about resumes, you know, tactics. So if, if that's what you're looking at, you should definitely check that out. All right, let's 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 hit up the next question here. Jonah Beck from YouTube. Should metrics such as wish lists and demo downloads be avoided if they're not convincing? What is a good threshold to know whether such marketing metrics will be convincing in a pitch deck? Oh, that's a good one. Um, thresholds overall, again, really don't exist case-by-case uh, -case basis. It depends on how much funding you're looking for. It depends on uh, the project scope. It, it depends on your market analysis. So many different factors. It's sort of made up on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, 
Personally speaking, I think you can be pretty straightforward, even if you don't share wish list, wish list numbers due to the all these formulas that, um, that the games industry has figured out over the last couple of years, especially on Steam. Um, something looking at how many followers a Steam page has and then multiplying that, that by X and therefore sort of figuring out the range of, of wish lists you should be expecting for a project. All that information, while not being 100% accurate, is sort of out there. Uh, personally, I would say if you have some really impressive numbers that you're proud of, that's all you need. As long as you're proud of and convinced that, hey, these are some numbers I'm, I, I personally managed to get and uh, want to put out there, cool. Just sort of decide that on a, on a personal basis. Don't let anyone else tell you what, uh, what you should be proud of and be putting out there or not. Although that's what I've been doing for the past hour. <laughs> uh, okay, let's have some fun. Has another question. How do you feel about being approached with a finished game? What's a more ideal point in the process to be approached? I feel like most of my answers are really unfulfilling because they always go back to case-by-case -case basis. Um, what I would say for us, a finished project in most cases is not, not too interesting. I mean, I, I'd happily check it out. Usually we tell people at least six months out from launch, if your game is finished and uh, we, we enjoy it that much, we might just tell you, hey, let's let's work on the, the sort of the marketing preparation and building an audience for, for a couple of months leading up to, to the launch. Um, similar thing goes for B2B or business conversations overall. If I want to pitch your project around now as a publisher to I did Xbox to Nintendo to PlayStation to Apple Arcade and see on which platforms we can potentially get the game and, and get a deal out of that. That will take away a couple of months of time, probably, most likely, to really finalize those conversations if they go anywhere. So at least six months out it is for me personally in an ideal state. Um, but it sort of depends. I know publishers that are looking to, to sign on sort of a not last minute schedule, but close to being release ready, uh, Put the game out there and then see how it does with sort of their their standard marketing practices on the other hand side there's publishers that that have no problem signing prototypes and be there from day one which is something that we're also usually quite comfortable with depending on the prototype that's awesome. course, most of our answers on this show end up starting with it depends it for depends. that very reason yeah. so yeah you're yeah. you're giving the same kind of answers we generally give it's all good so uh, it's the, the answers are they're all yes and no. Uh, so here we go. Uh, Divin Orum's in the house from Twitch. The question I always ask, how to pitch a game that needs budget for art and sound? Uh, sound, usually, and I know that that's oftentimes quite um, upsetting or can come, come off the, the wrong way. And I'll try to really carefully phrase the sentence. Sound is something that when we are looking at a uh, at a pitch deck, even a vertical slice, we consider in most cases to, or we very much understand that uh, it's either placeholder or work in progress or might be overhauled entirely because the, the sound designer, the composer or such might only be brought on board further down the line. Um, needing art for a game, uh, I would generally if you have, there's two options. If your game doesn't heavily just rely on the combination of art, sound, and text, for example, like a visual novel, then uh, you can focus on other aspects that might be quite convincing to, to the publisher you're pitching, such as core gameplay mechanics. Sure, a visual art style would 
would add to that experience. But as long as I have fun with the game, at first, when, when checking out the prototype uh, or, or similar, I don't care too much about how visually it's it's appearing because that's still something that can be that can be reworked or that can be figured out. Uh, with with a title that's more focused on sort of like a visual novel approach, art, sound, narrative first, it gets a little bit more tricky. Uh, as long as you have your artist figured out, you know which direction you want to go into mockups or just some yeah, generally some having some mockups available of hey, this is what the game will look like can be very helpful. Should be there ideally because if you just tell me hey, we're we're going out there, we still need someone to take care of sound and uh, and the visuals. Yeah, it'll be, and in and it's a visual novel. It'll be uh, not quite, or I won't really be able to figure out what your project really will end up looking like at the end of the day. Okay, uh, another one from Nightwolf. Uh, if your game is controversial, how do you approach a publisher with it? Is the approach different for each type of controversial game? Sexuality, violence, morality, character ages, war, real life locations, used, etc. <laughs> I don't think we've had too many controversial pitches in the past. Some were, some that maybe be able to to uh, put into that uh, into that spectrum. I guess it doesn't differ too much from any other pitch. You you will want to even more carefully uh, figure out who you're pitching. Oftentimes, I mean, this is a well-connected industry that speaks to each other. Uh, there are NDAs in place and such. Um, the term FENDIA is, is something that's quite well spread. So uh, even if there are NDAs in place, I would never do such a thing. But uh, many people will, will talk about things in, on a very vague level. If there's something controversial, I, I remember a uh, the title "Hatred" from from a couple of years ago, which was uh, a very controversial title of such. Those things will not go with a lot of people, or will uh, might have their own struggles. I know that "Hatred" was uh, pretty much throughout the industry very carefully looked at. Um, Due to due to its settings and really troubling ideas behind it, no no matter if intended or not, uh, and you should make sure that whoever you're pitching, you have an idea is is at least going to be interested on a on some level. If I don't, while there, while art doesn't really have any boundaries, I think especially in a in a diverse and open-minded industry such as the video video games industry, there there are certain topics or certain ways of handling topics that will that just don't really fit or will have a immensely hard time finding a partner that's willing to take the risk and uh commit to being sort of the the money giver yeah they marketed hatred in such a way when you're like oh my god this game is going to be disgusting and terror and it really wasn't even that bad i mean you just I kill have, people like, yeah i haven't played it i have no idea <laughs> You just kill people. I mean, there's a lot of games where you just kill people. But you just, I mean, I guess because the story is, it's pointless. Okay, let's see. Here we go. Lee Perez from Facebook says, what's the most impressive thing you've ever seen in a pitch deck? Oh, wow. Okay. Huh. And Liam Liam 12 says me. That's okay. <laughs> Hi, Liam. Good to see you. Um, <laughs> most impressive thing I've ever seen in a pitch deck. I, I'm a very visual guy. Like I, uh, if I see something from the get-go that just 
it's exactly my vibe that I connect with. And then it also looks stunning, not only the game itself, but the visual presentation that can, at least at first sight, make quite a difference. Obviously not in, in the final decision-making, but just making me a little bit more excited about what I'm looking at. Uh, otherwise, just clear development, well, very clearly structured uh, budgets and, and timelines. As I mentioned, that's not something that's mandatory at all. It's always something that can be figured out together with the publisher or sort of iterated upon during the negotiation process, but really a, a pitch deck that has all the information I spoke about in, in, uh, in the past hour or roughly an hour, summarized well, broken down well, and, and have a clear messaging is uh, at the base level the most fulfilling and impressive thing I, I see because it's rare. It's like re it's really really hard to to create a pitch deck that's anonymously uh, no that's uh, collectively going to be interesting and impressive to to many people because everyone has their own little tweaks and styles that they prefer. That's good info. Uh, if uh, so, from Con Conqueso on Twitch, if you need developer help, like another programmer to work on the project, is that something you would suggest including in the pitch deck? It's a good question. Um, looking back at the team slide that I had, uh, well, I didn't have a uh, an exact team slide, but we talked very briefly about um, convincing the partner that your team is the right team and can, can pull off what they, um, what they claim to be wanting to pull off. I think that's a very good spot to also add some information on these are the p positions that are filled. Here are the team members that have taken up these positions and these one, two, three positions are still to be filled. I think there's definitely a place for that and um, helps in figuring out, oh, well, this will add a little bit more time to the to the development process because first it first needs to be uh, found out uh, and maybe even, maybe even the publisher can support you with that. So yeah, definitely. I mean, Feel free to include that. Oh, here, this is a good question right here from Hitoshi. Hitoshi Kano on YouTube. And I've had to answer emails this way in the past as well. I hope this doesn't come out as disrespectful. Is <laughs> your game is interesting, but it doesn't fit our portfolio, uh, like a default answer to avoid saying they don't like it? Or is that like a common deal breaker? No, I, I generally consider this to be a deal breaker. That's a good point that I actually should have talked about a little bit earlier with the deal breaker question. For, um, let's see, what's a good example? I mean, I can talk a little bit about, about, about us uh, as a very active example right now. We have three pillars that we focus on when when someone is is pitching us that ideally in the, in the perfect pitch should be filled. One is replayability, a second is expandability, and a third one is potential for community growth. All those three are pillars. They're not um, ne necessarily one. They don't necessarily have to be 100% reflective in a game. We have signed titles uh, that check like maybe two of those boxes, one of those boxes, but still sort of fall into that spectrum into, that, into what we consider our portfolio. If um, if someone comes to us with a, we had that recently, a stunning narrative-driven exploration title, a 3D exploration game within our budget range, within our timeline range, wonderful development studio with a lot of expertise. The only thing I could tell them was, hey, I love your project, but it doesn't, it really doesn't fit our portfolio because I consider us in that particular situation not to be the right person to uh are not the best fit for your game. Sure, we may commit to that project nevertheless, because it's your decision at the end of the day if, if you consider me or someone else a better fit, 
but we also want to have a a brand that's cohesive and players as well as uh, our industry friends and colleagues know a tag is putting out these types of games and then suddenly we we mix things up in between that doesn't really fit the branding anymore so yeah it, it definitely oftentimes for for many people may be the truth or most of the times it's probably the truth but yeah i, I can understand the frustration uh, I'm, I'm sure plenty of people use that as a as a quick reasoning of telling people hey this is well trying to avoid to tell people that they don't like their game which is again a thing that i somewhat understand um folks doing from time to time we've we've seen people react uh unfortunately very displeased in the past when we tried to give very straightforward and honest feedback about the direction the game was heading into. So uh, at this point, we're a little bit more careful uh, and send over. If we send over feedback, we wait for folks to follow up and specifically ask for it because some people just don't want to hear um, hear that feedback. Yeah, and and it's hard to give feedback to a bunch of different things all the time, right? To to take the time out to write detailed feedback, and sometimes it's yeah. just not a good fit. It's just not a good fit with the with the publisher. All right, let's see. Here we go. We got Yuki Master one two one twenty three. Can a game with clear gameplay and mechanics, but with no defined art direction, be pitched to a publisher? Sure, absolutely. I remember uh, one of my favorite examples because it, uh, Callum spoke so often about it was uh, Atomic Crops, a, a game that uh, Raw Fury ended up pitching that I believe he signed. And um, from my understanding, that project was pitched to them with a certain art direction they had in mind or a certain art style that was already implemented. And uh, the reaction, again, I don't want to put words into anyone's mouth. That's just, just me sort of uh, referring to something from my memory a couple of years back. Rob Fury then suggested to bring on the art director behind Nidhogg to give Atomic Crops the wonderful art style that it has today. I don't see that being a problem. Of course, make it clear. Again, in the deck, if you have an art direction that you're hoping to, or that you're still figuring out or would like to have some, some input from even uh, from the publisher, the, going back to to the the honesty slide I was referring to, being straightforward is the the easiest thing here, and I don't see that being a deal breaker for most parties. And again, if it's a deal breaker for some publishers that are just looking for a finalized project where they don't have to get too much like their hands too dirty, then you know they will not be the right partner for you, and it'll speed up your process. Yeah, but certainly helps to have things pretty though. <laughs> that is true. All right, so here we go. We got one one last question. If anybody else has any questions, please pop them in chat because uh, time is running out here. So you better get your questions in. Okay, Dark Gucci Souls from Twitch. Will publishers be willing to fund a game with two years expected of development time, or do they expect something more close to finish? And he also, to be clear, in my question above, I meant a game that already has a year of work done, but will take two more years to finish. Yeah, of course. Again, unfortunately, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Um, there are a good chunk of publishers that are looking for those projects that are three to six months out from launch, and they can just take it, invest minimal resources or financial resources, and more invest their internal resources, staff time uh, towards marketing the game, porting the game, taking care of QA localization and such. Um, but there's plenty of publishers, especially these days in this more competitive landscape that have conversations very early on when um, very early on in development 
stages. People are planning ahead. People have to plan ahead, especially during like new console generations, things always moving and progressing and having early pitches where you can sit down, have a chat and uh, sign a title before anyone else has seen it or anyone else is willing to commit is an opportunity that some publishers are looking for. We are not opposed to signing a title two, two years out. So much I can say. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on here, for hanging out Thanks with us. Glad that you got your uh, presentation out here. I'm also going to post, uh, let's see here, join our Discord, uh, discord.gg slash Indie Game Business. Like us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com Indie Game Business, and twitter.com Business Indie to get all the latest news and updates. You can also listen to all of our past podcasts at anchor.fm slash Indie Game Business. And one final thing, and you can see it scrolling to the bottom, we're raising money for kids. Donate or join Ooh. our team at extra-life.org slash team slash Indie Game Business. And that's going to be down in the description as well. And we just got a whole bunch of comments. Oh, everyone's oh, saying it thank you. Th oh, it was you? Oh. It was you. Oh, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Any, anything you want to say here real quick, Jay? No, I'm good. Join us on Discord. Um, it's a very vibrant community at this point. The folks from Pitch a Game are now officially on there. We've got over 1,800 oh, members wow. on, the, yeah. on the Discord. So that's everybody from people coming out of college to you know acquisition reps from Nintendo are floating around there. You know, it, very warm, very welcoming, very awesome place to hang out. Um, but yeah, that's it. Anything you'd like to add, Mr. Wolf? Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for everyone uh, that tuned in during the talk. And yeah, see you at the next are, digital event. Are, are you up in Seattle? Is that you're wearing a Seahawks hat? No, I'm uh, currently in Germany, but I, I wish I was for PAX West right now, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, I'm going, I'm, I'm going up to Seattle uh, this weekend. How can we find the Discord? The Discord it. It. Oh, discord.gg slash indie game business. Yeah, if you're anything related to indie game business, just Google indie game business and there's should show the Discord, the Twitter, the everything, Facebook, all of that stuff, even the website. Oh my. Indie game dot business. Thanks so much, Chris. And we'll we'll talk to you later. Thanks, everybody. Thank Appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.